Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is titled, Icons. Those with a rough outline of history know that we're coming up on that moment when the eastern and western branches of the church split. The break wasn't some incidental accident that happened without a lot of preparation. Things had been going sour for a long time. One of the contributing factors was the iconoclast controversy that split the Byzantine church in the 8th and 9th centuries. While the Western church went through monumental changes during the Middle Ages, the Eastern church centered at Constantinople pretty much managed a holding pattern. It was the preservation of what they considered orthodoxy that moved Eastern Christians to view the Western church as making dangerous and sometimes even heretical alterations to the faith. The Eastern Church thought itself to now be alone in carrying the faith of the ecumenical councils into the future. And for that reason, Constantinople backed away from its long-stated recognition that the Church at Rome was preeminent in church affairs. Another factor contributing to the eventual sundering of East from West was the musical chairs played by the Western Emperor, while in the East, the Emperor was far more stable. Remember that while the Western Roman Empire was effectively dead by the late 5th century, the Eastern Empire continued to identify itself as Roman for another thousand years, though historians now refer to it as the Byzantine Empire. At Constantinople, the emperor was still the Roman emperor, and like Constantine, the de facto head of the church. He was deemed by the Eastern Church as the, quote, living image of Christ, unquote. But that was about to experience a major remodel in the Bruja between the iconoclasts and iconoduals, terms we'll define a bit later. The most significant controversy to trouble the Byzantine Church during the European Middle Ages was over the use of religious images known as icons. That's the way that many modern historians regard what's called the iconoclast controversy, as a debate over the use of icons. But as usual, the issue went deeper it arose over the question of what it meant when we say that something is holy. The church was divided over the question of what things were sufficiently sacred as to deserve worship. Priests were set apart by ordination, meaning they'd been consecrated to a holy work. Church buildings were set apart by dedication. They were sacred. The martyrs were set apart by their deeds. That's why they're called saints, meaning set apart ones. And if martyrs were saints by virtue of giving their lives in death, what about the monks who gave their lives, yet still lived? Weren't they worthy of the same kind of honor? If all these people, places, and things were holy, were they then worthy of special veneration? The holiness of the saints was endorsed and demonstrated by miracles, not just attributed to them while they lived, but also reported in connection with their tombs, relics, even images representing them. By the beginning of the 7th century, many cities had a local saint whose icons were revered as having special powers of intercession and protection. Notable examples were St. Demetrius of Thessalonica, the Christ icon of Edessa, and the miracle-working icon of Mary of Constantinople. From the 6th century, both church and government encouraged religious devotion to monks and icons. Most Christians failed to distinguish between the object or person and the spiritual reality they stood for. They fell into what many regarded as the dreaded sin of idolatry. But before we rush to judgment, let's take a little time to understand how they slipped into something that Scripture clearly bans. 
The use of images as a help to religious devotion has strong precedent. In pagan Rome, the image of the emperor was revered as if the emperor himself were present. Even images of lesser imperial officials were occasionally used as stand-ins for those that they represented. After emperors became Christians, the imperial image on coins, in courthouses, and in the most prominent places in the major cities continued to be an object of veneration and devotion. Constantine and his successors erected large statues of themselves, the remains of which are on display to this day. It was Justinian I who broke with tradition and instead erected a huge icon of Christ over the main gate of the palace at Constantinople. During the following centuries, icons of Christ and Mary came to replace the imperial icon in many settings. Eventually, under Justinian II in the early 8th century, the icon of Christ began to appear on coins. While the use of images as accoutrements to facilitate worship was generally accepted, there were those who considered such practice contrary to the Bible's clear prohibition of idolatry. They weren't against religious art per se, only its elevation into what they considered the realm of worship. The debate over icons was really a kind of doctrinal epilogue to the Christological controversies of an earlier time. What was proper in depicting Christ and other biblical persons? Can Jesus even be represented, or is the attempt a violation of his divinity? Does making an image of Jesus enforce his humanity at the expense of his deity? And when does art, used in the service of worship to enhance or facilitate it, interfere with worship because the object or the image becomes the focal point? Though these questions may seem distant to us who hail from a modern evangelical background, they may be able to get in touch with the challenge the Eastern Church of the 8th and 9th centuries faced by remembering back a little way to when some notable worship leaders raised concern about the modern worship scene with its fostering an environment of overblown emotionalism. Some phrased it as the worship of worship rather than the worship of God. Musical productions and concerts became events that people turned out by the thousands for as they sought a spiritual thrill, a worship high. One well-known composer of modern worship wrote a song that aimed to expose this trend. It was titled, The Heart of Worship. Though the medium was different, in some ways the recent worship and worship concern was similar to the concern of the Byzantine iconoclasts. In the ancient Eastern Church, the medium was the art of images, the more recent controversy centered on the art of music. By the 7th century, the most significant form of Eastern devotion was the cult of holy icons. While I could give a more technical definition or description of icons, let me keep it simple and say that they were highly stylized paintings made on wood. The images were of Jesus, Mary, saints, angels. And while there were primitive images used by Christians all the way back in the 1st century, we'd have to say that Christian art began in earnest in the 3rd century. It was either used decoratively or depicted scenes from the Bible as a way to instruct illiterate believers. As mentioned, since the people of the Eastern Empire were already accustomed to showing deference to portraits of the emperor, it wasn't much of a stretch to apply this to pictures of what were considered holy people. Since imperial portraits were often set off by draperies, people prostrated before them, burned incense and lit candles beside them, and carried them in solemn processions. Well, it seemed inevitable that icons of the saints would receive the same treatment. 
The first Christian images known to have been surrounded by such veneration occurred in the 5th century. The practice became widely popular in the 6th and 7th centuries. The reserve that church leaders like Epiphanius and Augustine had shown toward the use of images at the end of the 4th century disappeared. It's important to realize that when it comes to icons and their use, there were really two tracks. One track was the way that theologians justified or condemned them. The second tract was that of the common people who had little interest in the fine points of theology involved in their use. The iconoclasts framed the issue from track two. They were skeptical of the illiterate masses being able to make a distinction between simply using an icon as a means of worship of what the image represented and actual worship of the image itself. What seemed to prove their point was when some of these icons and religious relics were attributed special powers to affect healing and work wonders. Pro-icon church leaders maintained that a misunderstanding of icons ought not prohibit their use. That would err into mere pragmatism. Emperor Leo III launched an attack on the use of icons in the first half of the 8th century. He was motivated by a concern the church was engaging in the forbidden practice of idolatry, the very thing that had cost ancient Israel so much trouble. Perhaps the Eastern Empire's humiliating losses over the previous century, as well as a terrible earthquake early in Leo's reign, were evidences of divine judgment. If so, Leo was concerned the empire would awaken to their peril, repent, and amend their ways. Of course, Leo didn't come up with this on his own or out of the blue. There were many among the clergy and common people who questioned the use of icons as objects of religious devotion. But now with the emperor's backing, this group of iconoclasts, as they were called, became more vocal. Antagonism toward the use of icons grew, especially along the eastern frontier that bordered Muslim lands. Muslims had long called Christians idolaters for their use of religious images. Leo grew up in that region and had served as governor of Western Asia Minor among several iconoclast bishops. The word iconoclast means breaker or destroyer of icons because eventually that's what the iconoclasts will do, smash, break, and burn icons. After successfully repulsing the Muslim armies in their second attack on Constantinople in 717, Emperor Leo III openly declared his opposition to icons for the first time. He ordered the icon of Christ over the imperial gate to be replaced with a cross. In spite of widespread rioting, in 730, Leo called for the removal and destruction of all religious icons in public places and churches. The iconoduals, as supporters of icons were called, were persecuted. In Rome, Pope Gregory III condemned the destruction of icons. The emperor retaliated by removing Sicily, southern Italy, and the entire western part of the Balkans in Greece from Rome's ecclesiastical oversight, placing them under the Patriarchate of Constantinople. It was this, as much as anything, that moved the pope to seek the support and protection of the Franks. Leo's son, Constantine V, not only continued his father's iconoclastic policy, he furthered it. He convened a council in 754 at the Imperial Palace in Hyrea, a suburb of Constantinople. The iconoclasts regarded it as the seventh ecumenical council, though it was only the Patriarchate of Constantinople that actually attended it. Both iconoclasts and iconoduls agreed that the divine in Jesus could not be represented in pictures, but Jesus had two natures. The iconoclasts argued that to represent the human nature, 
was to lapse into the dreaded Nestorianism, but to represent both natures was to go against their distinction, which was the heir of monophysitism, and made an image of deity. The Iconodules replied that to not represent Jesus Christ was uh, agreeing with monophysitism. Note how these arguments illustrate the practice of debating new issues in terms of already condemned errors. Against pictures of Mary and saints, the iconoclasts reason that one cannot depict their virtues, so pictures were at best a vanity unworthy of the memory of the person they represented. Surely, they said, Mary and the saints wouldn't want such images made of them. Other arguments by the iconoclasts were that the only true image of Jesus Christ is the Eucharist. Supporters of icons used arguments that were most effectively articulated by John of Damascus, an Arab Christian who wrote in Greek. John was a monk at the monastery of St. Saba in Palestine, where he became a priest and devoted himself to the study of scripture and literary work. Being outside the realm of Byzantine control, he was safe from retaliation by the emperor and iconoclastic officials. John of Damascus was the most systematic and comprehensive theologian in the Greek church since Origen. His most important work was The Fountain of Knowledge, part three of which, titled On the Orthodox Faith, gives an excellent summary of the teaching of the Greek fathers on the principal Christian doctrines. He also produced homilies, hymns, and a commentary on the New Testament letters of Paul. John of Damascus's three apologies against those who attacked the divine images took a fourfold approach to the issue. First, he said, it's simultaneously impossible and impious to picture God, who is pure spirit. Jesus Christ, Mary, saints, and angels, on the other hand, who've appeared to human beings, may be depicted. The Bible forbids idols alone. Second, it's permissible to make images. The Old Testament prohibition of images was not absolute, for some images were commanded to be made. Take, for instance, the cherubim over the mercy seat and other adornments for the tabernacle and temple. John said that we're not under the strictures of the Old Covenant now. In fact, the incarnation of God in Christ prompts us to make the invisible visible. John set the incarnation at the center of his defense of icons, elevating the debate from a question only of practices of piety to a matter of theological orthodoxy. Since human beings are created with body and soul, the physical senses are important in human knowledge of the divine. There are images everywhere. Human beings are images of God. The tradition of the church allows images, and this suffices even without scriptural warrant, he argued. Third, it's lawful to venerate icons and images because matter isn't evil. There are different kinds of worship. True worship belongs to God alone, but honor may be given to others. Fourth, he said, there are advantages to images in their veneration. They teach and recall divine gifts, nourish piety, and become channels of grace. John of Damascus is regarded by the Orthodox Church as the last of the great teachers of the early church, men universally referred to as the Church Fathers. Despite his arguments, iconoclast emperors drove iconodules from positions of power and began a vigorous persecution. Many works of art in church buildings from before the 8th century were destroyed. Constantine V took strong measures against monks, the chief spokesman for images secularizing their property and forcing them to marry nuns. Many of them fled to the West. The popes watched all of this with interest and came in on the side of the Iconodules. Some of the best formulations of the independence of the church, arguing that the emperor was not a teacher of the church, were made in their letters. In the end, the iconoclasts sealed their defeat 
by refusing to give to pictures of Jesus the reverence that they gave to pictures of the emperor. The reaction against iconoclasm finally set in after Constantine V. His son and successor, Leo IV, was not an energetic iconoclast as his father and grandfather. His widow, Irene, regent for their son Constantine VI, overturned the dynasty's iconoclastic policy. At her bidding, the Council of Nicaea in 787 condemned the iconoclasts, affirming the theological position taken by John of Damascus. They found, quote, the venerable and holy images, as well in painting and mosaic as of other fit materials, should be given due salutation and honorable reverence, not indeed that true worship of faith that pertains alone to the divine nature, unquote. But that wasn't the end of iconoclasm. An iconoclast block developed in the professional military as a reaction to a series of military disasters, diplomatic humiliations, and economic problems the empire experienced in the quarter century after the 787 Nicene Council. They interpreted all these setbacks as the judgment of God for the empire's return to idolatry. Finally, Emperor Leo V decided that iconoclasm should again become the official policy of his government. A synod of church leaders in 815 reaffirmed the position taken by the anti-icon synod of 754, except that they no longer regarded icons as idols. With Leo V's death, active persecution of the pro-icon party declined for 17 years before bursting out again in 837 under the leadership of the patriarch John Grammaticus. Under his influence, Emperor Theophilus decreed exile or capital punishment for all who openly supported the use of icons. Theodora, widow of Theophilus and regent for their son Michael III, decided that he ought to abandon the iconoclastic policy to retain the widest support for his rule. A synod early in 843 condemned all iconoclasts, deposed the iconoclastic patriarch John Grammaticus, and confirmed the decrees of the Seventh Council. In today's Eastern Orthodox churches, paintings and mosaics frequently fill spaces on ceilings and walls. A screen or low partition called the iconostasis stretches across the front of Eastern Orthodox churches, between the congregation and the altar area, for the purpose of displaying all the special icons pertaining to the liturgy and the holy days. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.